This is the Effin' Rad Snowboarding Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Trollson. Welcome to Episode 7. Just a quick note before we start this week's show, we'll be recording a live Effin' Rad at Chair 9 in Glacier, Washington on the weekend of the Mount Baker Legendary Bank Slalom. If you're interested in attending, personal message us on our Facebook page. Special guests or guests to be announced, and we really hope you can join us. Yeah, I didn't start even riding till I was 65 years old. The first board I read was this plastic Sims Lonnie Toff with the skate deck. Snowboarding is exactly the same as it used to be. It's just, you know, everybody wants something from it. I don't know if I can endure any more shitty winters. We're going to be okay, you know, and that's all that matters. You can put it away for a while, but you can't put it away forever because it's just almost like a spiritual thing. In February of 1990... I met Tim Wendell at Lake Ridge Ski Hill in Ontario. He was doing a demo, and I rode up the chairlift with him and told him how I wanted to go to Craig Kelly's summer camp. Tim told me that his camp at Mount Hood was way better and that I should go to that. So I told my parents that Tim had invited me to Mount Hood, and they paid the 399 bucks it cost to go there for a seven-day camp in the summer of 1990. That's where I hopped on the chair with Mike Jacoby, and he couldn't have been a nicer guy. Twenty-five years later... I find myself driving to Hood River, Oregon to meet up with him for this interview. When I was about an hour from his place, I figured I should Google him for a refresher, and the first thing that came up was a New York Times article about him from 1997. The article calls Jacoby a leading member of the United States snowboarding team and says on a snowboard he's, quote, as agile as Gretzky on skates. Jacoby was current giant slalom world champion two years running, and was definitely a hopeful for bringing home the gold at Nagano in Japan. The next article from 2010 tells of a terrible mountain bike crash that left Mike in the hospital. So I did whatever I did during work, and then I was like, oh, i got to go get some exercise. So I came over here and went into uh, the bike shop. I was looking at helmets. I need to get a new helmet. Eh, I want to go ride. I can get a helmet later. Yeah. That ride, I happened to hit a tree during... 3035, broke my jaw in three places, was unconscious for a week. So I spent a week in OHSU, and then they transferred me to Rio. I spent, I think, another month, and I had to learn to walk and all that stuff again. Like, I, I remember just struggling. Like, I, I, here's the best part of my accident no short term memory. Usually, you have no short term memory, you don't know, but I knew I had no short term memory. It was effort to be moving my feet, you know, and, and bad balance, you know. And I'm cracking up. And I remember the therapist was like, what's up here? And I was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm not going to have to remember this in five minutes. You know, <laughs> might as well enjoy it. You know, I'm, I've always had a really good lemonade stand, you know. And yeah. it's just like, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't see lemons in anything. It's like, apparently I didn't then either. Thankfully, Mike recovered. And over the next few months, he returned to work, where he trains people to fly drones. We couldn't go into detail about that, though. It's classified. But we did get to chat over chowder at the Hood River Saturday Market. I built my own snowboard, and then I broke it a few days later. I went out and bought a... I, can't, I think it might have been the Performer, you know, Woody. I broke that not long after, and I wrote this letter when I, that I sent in with it. So you send it back now. It would be 10 days to get out to Vermont. And, you know, they replaced it 10 days to get back. 
our winter's going, you know. It's like, and I know in it, I said, what are you going to do, send me an extra board so I can have one in stock to keep sending, you know, back for replacements or something like that? Well, randomly, two different shipments did show up. I got two boards back. I mean, I always did a lot of the backcountry with my dad, costume for skiing, whatever, skiing. We used to go to Teton Village every weekend. And I got into snowboarding, and of course, nobody allowed it. So I'd take the bus up on weekends and hike the backside of Colors Canyon. At the end of the day, I'd just go, you know, after riding all day, I'd ride down the front and get chased by ski patrol and all that. We don't allow that. And my friends, our friends that we stayed with, they were friends with all the, you know, ski patrol and stuff. One of the ski patrols said, you know, said, hey, hey, we've talked about, you know, we, we allow it now. We were there every weekend after that. You cool. know, and if, if we weren't there, then we are Glory Bowl or just... I was hiking backcountry. I had, you know, used to ride down the sides of the overpasses, uh, like in Idaho Falls. There's, you know, the highway goes under and there's a little slant. I'd build jumps on those and be jumping towards the the no traffic that was coming. During that time, we used to have this little quarter pipe that we built and we stacked hay bales and stuff and had this little quarter pipe in the canal in Idaho Falls there. Somebody had a Lani Toff. I remember I had my homemade board and the Woody, and then somebody had a Sims. FB 1500 or something like that. It was like, wow. When I was 15, I moved out of Idaho. My dad had got a job. You know, he's a nuclear engineer. And we up and moved to Lake of the Pines, California. Craig was on the team prior to you? Or you guys all got on around the same time? Technically, he was probably on the team prior to me. All in a matter of months. I signed my contract, <laughs> rushed to get a passport, and then off I was to Europe. We are at Stubaital. Jake got everybody there. And he put the whole team together. It was all the Europeans, but then there was there's Craig, there's Brad Reeser, there's Carrie Hannon, there's I mean all I mean all everybody that I just was a Sims with. I'm like, oh well, hey, you know, I, I didn't know everybody had crossed over. What did you like better, racing or or freestyle, like half pipe? Well, kind of liked it all, but at the time I was focusing on I was trying you know I was just I was really good at racing, but I was trying to figure out the freestyle. I mean it's like. I realized, I, yeah, I don't have style. And I started learning to, learn to skateboard, you know, learning, learning to ollie and do all that stuff, you know. And Tucker Franson had a huge ramp in his backyard and kind of got the skateboarding down. I started taking gymnastics just so I could learn more body control. And when Burton signed me, they signed me on. I think they th- thought they were getting a racer because I had won, you know, the giant slalom and the slalom. That year, I think I got like six in the pipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they signed me on this racer and then like, they got a freestyler. You know, I'm not sure what people were thinking, but I have a lot of appreciation for the racing, and, and it, it makes riders better. I mean, learning all the stuff that racing has to offer crosses over in, in the free ride. When I did my first event, it was kind of like, wonder how good am I, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So I went and did it, and I had fun, and, and then all of a sudden, it was making money. And I'm like, making you know, I hate competition. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, I don't, I mean, I, don't, I hate it with a passion. And I'm so competitive. But the competitive, I mean, that just kind of grew in there. But it was like, hey, this gives you money. It's either go get a job. And then, like, because, I mean, like I said, I was going to go to school. My dad was the one that sat me down and said, hey, son, they're trying to give you an education. You're getting, it's going to be a better education than school's ever going to get you. You're going to go see the world and whatever. It's like, you can't buy that. And, you know, and so he's like, you know, like, do it. Because he, even he was like, why do you keep turning this down? I never Keith. felt the competition. I mean, we were, we were just, it's like, you know, I, I, I go to use the word buddies, but, you know, yeah, we were buddies, but, you know, we were on this team together. Uh, 
a lot of it I pretty much give to Craig. There there were times when I was, you know, having to negotiate, and he'd just, oh, yeah, just this, and he, his older, little bit more experienced, like, oh, just, and I'd take his advice, and, I mean, I learned a lot business-wise. My whole thing was not to have an agent for a long time. It was just to do it all myself. I'm like, not going to school. You might as well educate yourself. And so I did, and then later on, as the Olympics came in, I ended up getting an agent, too, so that was all an education on it. Were you on Burton the whole time? No, I left Burton right before the overall world title. So I think they were sitting there telling me who I could or couldn't work with, something like, hey, let me go. Like, you, like you can't win on anything else. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, and then I went into a shop and bought hot snowboards. Cause I was like, that looks like the best Alpine one out here in Alpha yeah. And I won the world championships on or the board that you purchased um, with, yeah. with your own money. Yeah. And, um, you know, I started winning World Cups and stuff with it. And I think I finally won the overall world title that year. Did you keep in touch with Craig when you left the team? Yeah, actually, um, yeah. I... You hear that pause? I'd find out later it was Mike deciding whether he wanted to share his experience of Craig Kelly passing away with the public which he chose not to. We continued our conversation about his bush piloting in Alaska, his accident, and mostly his boat, which he had recently sailed to Vancouver and back in, the boat he plans to sail around the world in this March. We finished the recording, and as we were walking back to our cars, we realized we hadn't covered everything we wanted to do, so we agreed to have a phone conversation later on. A few days later, he wrote me a heartfelt message about how talking with people about Craig's passing had been hard and that Craig was always a true friend. I called him later that week and we started the phone interview with how he signed with Burton. He kept turning down Burton's contract offers. He says it ended up working out to his advantage because he guesses Burton thought he had other offers on the table. So I just kept turning the deals down and then they kept up the money and thought I wanted to go to school. I was also turning it down because I didn't want the money. I, didn't, I don't want to be a professional. I want to be able to go to the Olympics when it becomes an Olympic sport. They finally said, hey, we can't offer you anything more. You know, they offered me a lot of amazing things I would have never known to negotiate. And they said, like, well, why don't you want to be professional? I was like, well, I'm definitely an Olympic sport. And then I want the opportunity to go. You know, he said, oh, you know, if and when it ever becomes an Olympic sport, which it won't, uh, they have to give you a chance to you know, turn amateur again or look eligible. 98 and Nagata made the U.S. team and beat it in the Giants song. It was the most insane payback. It was just an awesome experience. And what was even more awesome for me is I had worked a deal with AT&T. If I made the Olympic team, then they would buy my parents over to Japan, put them up as long as I was there, and give them a cell phone for the whole time and give them tickets, whatever they wanted to go to. It was kind of nasty weather for the final qualifier, and as I told my friends, I don't bother coming, I'll, I'll just give you a call, you know. And, you know, I called them up and said, pack your bags, you know. That was a pretty cool phone call that I made, you know. Uh, you know, I had a great time at the Olympics, so I'd like to say if anybody had a better time at the Olympics than I did, it would have been my parents. It was an awesome payback, you know, all the support they've always given me in years. And, you know, it, it kind of felt like, you know, going to the Olympics and going to all the figure skating events was a one of my mother's dreams, and I, I think that, you know, it was, it was just awesome to do that to my parents. It's kind of funny because the contract was all contingent on me making the Olympic team. Like, I, I would not have gotten a penny or had any, really anything there if I hadn't made the team. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of, it was a pretty risky deal on my part, but it was cool. 
there, there are a lot of people that were just putting everything on the line there. You know, they're riding way above their abilities, and <laughs> it kind of made you have to really play your little beyond your A game, you know. I like to say I got burnt out going to the Olympics. I, I peaked out before the Olympics because I was trying to make the team, you know. Uh, yeah, actually, I met Ross because uh, I used to coach at Craig's snowboard camp in the summer at Whistler. But I think before he started riding for Burton a little bit, you know, they really hurt the sport of alpine snowboarding. I think I feel like it even kind of hurt snowboarding. You know, it was it wasn't like he had broken any rule at all. And that's the reason why he still has the medal today. It kind of kind of blew my mind. You know, it was good for Ross. I mean, it, it did nothing but good things for Ross. It just you know it hurt corporate sponsorships for snowboarding. They hurt a lot of things, and 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 Ross hadn't done anything wrong. He he was well within the rules, you know. The whole JTO thing, it was kind of an accident, and it actually did evolve. We used to go up to Donda Ski Ranch, and I usually would pick up Tucker Prince and Chris Roach or a bunch of people in my car, and we'd drive up and shred Donna Ski Ranch. Tucker and I, and I don't know who else we were riding, and there's just one little hit, and I went up, and I'm doing a hand blunt, and I threw myself back, went around, and my hand never touched the ground, and I landed back on my feet, and Tucker was like, Whoa, what was that? I'm like, oh, I tried to do a hand plant, but you did it again. Like, sure. Went around and yeah, did it again, did it again, and did it again. And, and then um, then I pulled out an event, and people were just like, going, oh, what is that? And the hand plant. You know, Mike Chancellor said, well, you have to name it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know what to call it. And so Chantry said, call it the J Terror. <laughs> You know, so I was like, J-Terror, all right, sure. He kind of got shortened into J-Terror. It's really cool to have made a trick up like that. I do it a lot. If I wasn't in the contest, I'd do it with no hands. And if I was in the contest, I'd always make sure the hand was down. You know, never got disqualified, always had it under control, you know. I definitely taught as many people that wanted to know how to do it because I figured more people were doing it. You know, judges have something to judge against, like who's doing it better. And obviously, I have seen how as the rules have changed stuff, how have progressed, and uh, what they're doing now is just so far beyond. It's just, I almost can't relate. I'm sure it's the way people felt when they first saw the J-Tear. You know, I, I, feel, I, feel like, I feel like the J-Tear is easy. That's <laughs> That's a kindergarten move compared to what they do now. That brings up a funny story of, of my sportsmanship. I mean, it was at one of the U.S. Opens. I was killing it, you know, in the dual slalom. And in, in the dual slalom, you have to race the guy, and then you flip courses and race again. I had beat Peter Bauer and had to go back up there and do it again, right? So there we are in the gate, and, and the, the countdown's going, and his boot's broken. He, he doesn't have a tool to fix it. By default, there, I could have just won. Uh, here I am in the gate, and I take myself out of my focus, and I, I got the tool. <laughs> I get over there, and nobody could figure out how to use it. So I ended up fixing his boot for him. And then we raced, and I, you know, I ended up losing them. But, you know, it was like, you know, like, oh, I'm going to win this thing fair and square, you know? That story just kind of popped in my head of when I fixed Peter Bowers boot, and then, then he beat me. <laughs> Just have fun. That's what life is, you know. Okay, sounds good. Uh, have a good, have a good weekend. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> okay, cool. Bye. Big F and Rad shoutouts this week to Mike Jacoby. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us, man. You rule, Mike. And a reminder about our live show, February nineteenth at Chair Nine in Glacier, Washington, with surprise guests. Music in today's episode, courtesy of Patty Kehoe, a couple of Whistler shreds who also rip on musical instruments. Special thanks to Evan Cam for that hookup, and check out more of their music at heatrockstudios.com. 
Effin' Rad is brought to you by BR Productions. <laughs>